God's word. Well, the young man sits in the dust, tracing a pattern with his finger. His stomach grumbles for food, and his heart groans with shame. All the ways he's messed up, he's hurt the people who loved him, it's all coming and pouring on top of him now. The only glimmer of hope in his mind centers around one word, return. Could he return? He remembers his brother's rage and his father's wounded eyes. No, never. But what would he say? If he could return, what would it look like? Some of you may have guessed, I'm describing the prodigal son, a story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. And it's this question, what would it look like to return? That is the center of this text. And and really, this is the center of the book of Joel. This is a critical question because the decision to return is the hinge upon which every life turns. When your sin is discovered by your conscience, by the Holy Spirit, by your friend, by the church, will you return is the question that needs to be answered. It is the question at the beginning of every Christian life. Will you turn to the Lord in repentance? And it's the question that comes up continually throughout the Christian life. Will you return when you sin, when your faith grows stale, when you're lost? Will you return? And if so, what would it look like to return? That's the question we'll address this morning as we look at this next section of Joel. But before we do that, we have to face the darkness of verses 1 to 11. And so we begin with my first point, real judgment, real judgment. And I can imagine some of you may be thinking as we read those verses, man, Ash, could we move past all these heavy judgment texts a little bit faster? I mean, I feel like we covered that pretty well when we talked about the locust plague last week. And perhaps that's the response that Joel got when he began speaking about these things from his listeners. Joel, man, you're so negative. I mean, look, don't you have any good news for us here? Look at us. We're demolished. Our fields are just, we're still shoveling out all the locust carcasses. But see, for Joel, this is all just a taste of what is near. He's a watchman up on the city walls, blowing a trumpet of warning. He's not there to tell them what they want. He's there to tell them what they need to hear. And let me just say briefly, sometimes that is what it's like to be a Christian. 
You're up there in front of people like a fool blowing a trumpet. And everybody in the world just wants you to say something nice. Make them feel good about themselves. And you have something delightful to share, but it won't matter till they know how urgent it is. And so you have to warn them. Some will laugh. Some will not hear. Some will get angry. But some will listen. And so we warn the world that rebellion against God will not go unseen. It will not go unjudged. These verses, verses 1 to 11 here, they describe an army. And there are, some, uh, there are three kind of major theories out there about what this army could be. Some people think maybe this is still describing the locust plague, uh, maybe an even worse wave of locusts. This would be typical for locust plagues because, you know, you got all these locusts and they all lay a lot of eggs. And so the next year you get sometimes a worse wave of locusts and there's usually a pattern with it. Uh, others think that Joel is actually shifting here to describe a human army that's going to be attacking Israel soon. Perhaps um, one of their enemy enemies like Assyria or Babylon. And some think that this is a divine army uh, that comes at the final day of judgment. I think this third option fits what God is doing here best as he warns that days of disaster like this locust plague they just had are warnings about that final day of disaster. But I think the ambiguity, the, the questions, the reason we have all these theories, I think that's actually part of the point. Because if you can imagine for Joel's original audience, what would it feel like, right? There's this sort of growing dread and suspense. As they're listening to Joel describe this new wave of trouble, and they're trying to guess, what, what is he talking about now? What's going to happen next? Is it another wave of locusts? Well, some of these descriptions, they do look a bit like locusts. You know, jumping around, coming through the windows, blocking out the light of the sun, but then he also says at the beginning, this is a great and powerful people. And it, and it kind of does sound like an army, a human army, marching on the land, destroying everything in its waste. But at the same time, of course, these guys are they're leaping on mountains. The earth is quaking before them. The heavens are trembling. It's sort of like there's, we got like a locust army and a human army, but like seriously upgraded version of both. And this, of course, leads to the dreadful realization in verse 11, that the Lord is leading this army. And so this is, in fact, a divine army. They can't cry out to God to deliver them from this army. He is their enemy. Is this a realization you faced? That your sin places you in opposition, not simply to against people around you, not, not, not simply against a commandment that God has written in the Bible. Your sin puts you in opposition to God himself. King David recognized this in Psalm 51 when he wrote, against you, you only have I sinned. It's rare that people want to be on the side of evil, but you have to realize what team you are playing for when you fall into sin. It's not God's team. And so we're left 
with the terrifying question of verse 11. Who can endure the day of the Lord's judgment? People, written on your hearts is the truth that God exists and will judge evil. You will not escape the judgment of the Lord if you remain his enemy. Joel uses the locust plague, he uses the human enemies of Israel to warn these people that the divine day of disaster is near. And so we come to the crucial question, will you turn to him? And and if you're a believer living in sin, will you return to him? Friends, here we are given two of the most paradoxical pictures of the Lord in the entire Bible. In verse 11, your terrifying enemy, uttering his voice before his army, executing his powerful word, who can endure his day? But then the next verse, verse 12, your tender father, yet even now, Return to me with all your heart. Would you want a God who is any other way? Some of you may need to hear the voice of the judge this morning. Some of you may need to hear the voice of a tender father this morning. But it's the same glorious God. Notice in verses 12 and 13 that they're in quotations, Uh, even though really all of this is the word of the Lord, right? That's how the whole book begins, the word of the Lord. But the reason for the quotations there in verses 12 and 13 is because of that phrase right at the beginning of verse 12, declares the Lord. This is a typical phrase for prophets to use, but for Joel, this is the only time he uses it. So, Joel has been speaking to the people of God, uh, for God, this whole time. But here, it's almost like God comes down himself and and says, hold on for a second, Joel. Let, Let me speak to them myself. And he looks at his people and he says, return to me. So let's look at how we return with my second point, true repentance, true repentance. First, we return with a whole heart. Verse 12 says, return to me with all your heart. This means that repentance cannot be a partial thing. You cannot come to the Lord with part of yourself or offer to give up only part of your sin like a child, you know, who generously offers you the tiniest crumb of their cookie to show you that they know how to share. That is not sharing. That's not repentance. God knows all of you. You don't get any privacy from God. He wants your whole heart to know and to be known fully. And consider for a moment how wonderful this is. God is not like the pagan gods who just want you to, you know, give them some sacrifices because they're hungry. What does he want? He wants your heart. He wants a relationship with you. He wants it to be total. 
There can be no secret sins that you're nurturing deep down in your heart somewhere. Neither can you give God part of your heart so that you can work on the other half. You can't do that. You you cannot fix the ruins of your heart on your own. Just bring everything you are and have done to Him. Second, return with a broken heart. God says in verse 13, rend your hearts and not your garments. He's he's targeting fake repentance here. All of that external stuff, weeping, the ripping of the clothes, it doesn't matter if you don't mean it inside. Uh, In fact, God hates it when his worshipers are just following the motions, but inside are far away from him. To get a broken heart, you need to protect your heart. Constant sin will harden your heart, build calluses around it, and grieve the Holy Spirit who brings you conviction. Never be tempted to think that sin is a neutral thing that you can do without consequence. Sin always seeks your destruction. Do not get comfortable with it. To soften your heart? Go to the Lord, cry out to Him. But you need to work also to engage your heart with spiritual things. Don't be lazy in church. Seek to understand what each part of the worship service means. Listen carefully to the sermon. If you let yourself tune out, it will become a habit Uh, Kids, teenagers, this may be a particular danger for you because you've grown up in the church, you've grown up with the Bible, and it can all just become routine. You forget to stop and ask yourself, why are we doing this? What does he mean by that? What is the pastor saying? To involve your heart, you need to involve your mind. Keep your heart soft and responsive so that it is broken when you sin. Thirdly, return to God because of who he is. We always need to be reminded of who God is. We don't return to God because of who we are. Right? That'd be like going to the, uh, the Phillies coaching staff this afternoon. Hey, uh, I hear you guys are in this thing called uh, the World Series. I could probably help out a bit with the pitching, you know, I dabble a bit. Right? That's a joke. That's a joke. Just like every person who has ever thought they could go to the Lord on the basis of their abilities. It's a joke. It's a sad joke. Come to God because of who He is. Verse 13, return to the Lord your God for, because he is gracious, he is merciful, gracious. That means God gives us good things we do not deserve. Merciful, that means he sees our desperate need and he has pity on us. His heart is sad for us. 
slow to anger. That means he is so patient. Why is this world full of sin still here if he is not patient? And his anger, it comes at exactly the right time. It's not out of control like our anger. Further, he's abounding in steadfast love. He overflows with love that binds him to keep his promises. And he relents over disaster. Now, we don't know exactly how relenting works itself out with his unchanging nature, but it means that our pleas for help matter to him. And from our human perspective, they do something. His heart is not hard and unyielding, but soft, gentle. He is ready for his grace to triumph over his judgment through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible reveals that he yearns for that. If the Lord of the universe is so inclined to forgive, why would you not return? Don't sit in the dust tracing your finger in a pattern with a heart groaning full of shame. Walk towards the Father and He will run to you. But be like the prodigal son in this other way too. Fourthly, return without presumption. The prodigal son, how does he return to his father? He returned just hoping to be a slave. And Joel here says in humility, verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent. Those of you who were in Jonathan's Sunday school class on Jonah, Uh, may remember this phrase, actually, the the pagan king of Nineveh, when faced with a message of God's judgment, told his people to turn from evil and cry out to the Lord. And he says, who knows? God may turn and relent. It's the exact same phrase in Hebrew. Perhaps Joel is even quoting from Jonah. It's hard to know because we're not sure when this book was written. But whether Joel knew or the Holy Spirit, of course, knew, well, think about what that means. God's people are being placed in the same position towards God as a pagan, evil nation. There ought to be no entitlement in the one who returns to the Lord. They don't get to presume on God's grace. God is not like a vending machine where you follow the five steps of repentance. You put in a coin and ka-ching out pops grace. A truly broken heart never acts that way towards God's forgiveness. We are more Bold. We're made bold by God's grace. We're, we're comforted by it. We're delighted by it, but we never assume it. We're always amazed. We're always surprised by it. If you find yourself presuming on God's grace, you need to question whether your heart is truly broken. If you are the prodigal son returning, remember, you've already squandered your inheritance. So where do you think your new inheritance comes from? 
The Father's only begotten Son dies to give it to you. Don't ever be presumptuous about that forgiveness. Well, fifthly, return for a blessing. Now, this is something extra that the Ninevites did not ask for when they repented. It's one thing to say, uh, please don't destroy us. It's another thing to say, please give us something to restore our relationship with you. Right? Because this, this blessing, verse 14, is a grain offering and a drink offering. And you'll remember back in chapter 1, verse 13, those daily offerings which maintained their covenant with God, their relationship with God, those had ceased. They don't have anything to offer right now. They don't, they're utterly needy. Not only have they broken the covenant, they can't even maintain the covenant. And notice how Joel has stripped away all the other things they need right now to the one thing they truly need. These people, they're in an absolutely depleted place, okay? They just survived a horrendous uh, disaster, a, a plague, and now they've got this terrible warning about an even worse thing that's going to happen. There are many possible blessings they could use right now, but Joel focuses in on the one blessing that is the key to life. That which brings communion with God. But how strange that they need the God they want to appease to provide what will appease Him. This is where we find ourselves when we return to the Lord. We have no blessing to offer Him. We have no sacrifice that will count. We have only the ability to ask for an unearned gift. Grace we do not deserve. Uh, do you remember the story of Abraham, where he is told to place his son on the altar? But then, in his grace, the Lord provides an offering to take his, his son's place. Now consider, you are Abraham. There on the altar lies your son, lies your daughter. The butcher knife is raised above them. Judgment must be done. Would you throw yourself between them and the knife? You can't. You're a sinner too. But the blessing of God is that He Himself provides the sacrifice for us and for our children in the person of His own Son, Jesus Christ. And we just like Abraham, just like the prophet Joel and the Israelites, we live in dependence upon this blessing. Our God is not like other gods. His blessing on us is not simply to give us some good things if we do the right thing. No, only selfish, prideful human beings would think of gods that work that way. Brethren, we have a God who came to earth and gave us himself. He himself is the blessing. He himself is the guarantee of his own covenant. He ensures that as we return trembling to him, our communion is restored. But now, finally, return with 
fellow believers. Return with your fellow believers. Joel actually spends the final three verses here detailing what this should look like. Uh, verses 15 through 17. And this is the most difficult part of this text to apply to our lives. Because this is such a unique event in the life of Israel. There's some sort of large-scale corporate sin going on amongst God's people that needs to be repented of publicly. And while there are uh, things that may sometimes occur in the church today like that, most of us were probably thinking more of personal situations as we thought about what it looks like to return to the Lord, what it looks like to repent. And yet, we are all sinners, even if our sins differ. And our sins do impact one another because we are a body. 1 Corinthians 12 goes into detail about how the events of your life affect the body of Christ. If one member suffers, all suffer together. Ephesians 4.16 indicates that the body grows and it builds itself up in love when each member is functioning correctly. This means... That every believer has a corporate responsibility to be repenting of their sin. You are accountable to your fellow believers to take repentance seriously. And so when we come in a time of corporate confession like we do each week and like the Israelites are doing here, we are calling each other to return. It's not just a time to think about the things that you did wrong that week. It's a time to mutually commit to the work of repentance. We're blowing the trumpet together. We're egging each other on to this urgent task for if We as a Christian community do not fight religious hypocrisy and prioritize purity. It will be said among the peoples, where is their God? They look like the world, worse even. And so for the glory of God and for the growth and the maturity of God, of his bride, every Lord's day, we call each other to return. I know there's some silence, there's some personal heart searching, but by taking all that seriously, we're crying out to each other, return, return, return to your God, for he is steadfast, he is gracious, he is merciful, he's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He relents over disaster. Brother, sister, Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. My friends, the true blessing upon all the nations is the blesser himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have seen even a glimpse of his goodness and his kindness, delight to return to him. God's judgment is real. But the way of true repentance is open.
Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the way of true repentance, that it is open to us, Lord, that we might pass through the blessed sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He, Lord, is the blessing that you leave behind for us as we return to you with whole hearts that are broken over our sin. We return confidently because of who you are, but without any presumption, knowing that your grace is your gift. And so this morning, we commit ourselves in prayer to hold each other accountable, to live lives of repentance. We will not be content to live in sin. For we are called to be a holy nation. And as we listen to our prophet, as we rest upon our priest, and as we follow our king, we, oh Lord, small and weak as we are, we bring glory to your great name. And so in Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.